You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we make this confession together that there's no other place we could go. Where could we hide from your presence? Where could we flee from your spirit? Would you help us to make that confession, not just with our mouths, but from our hearts, even this morning? That we are wholly and deeply dependent on you. And so we ask in our dependence that you would speak to us from your word, by your spirit. That you'd encourage and equip your people with all that we need. That you might receive praise and honor and glory and worship due your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, Good morning, River City. Today we are finishing our series in the book of Exodus um, that we've been in this fall. So if you are just joining us, welcome. Um, We're just going to, you can just jump in at the end. Um, We said in week one of this series uh, back in September that the gospel, uh, the story of the Bible is is Exodus-shaped. What we mean is this, that that God comes to a people in misery and in bondage. God defeats their slave master. God graciously provides for his people's well-being. He leads them to a place of safety where they can flourish. And in response to the mercy of God, the people offer back to God worship. They offer back to him their very lives. He will be their God and they will be his people. We're going to cover Exodus 35 through 40 this morning. So you can turn your Bibles to Exodus 35. If you need a Bible, some folks will be coming around and can get one in your hands. You can follow along. Like I said, we'll be starting in chapter 35, and some of the scripture will be on the screen as well. Uh, For the record, if there are typos on the screen, they're my fault. Just leaving that out there. Now, we've asked each Sunday three overarching questions. Every week we've asked these three questions as we've come to the text. And the reason we've asked them regularly and repeatedly is because we want to help you as you open God's Word at home, on your lunch break, when you're opening, particularly a a section like an Old Testament book like Exodus, you're able to have the tools you need to feed on God's Word. What is this telling us about who God is? What is this telling us about what it means to be God's people? And what is this showing us about God's plan of redemption? We're asking that question every time as we come to Exodus so that we'll see Exodus in its place as part of God's bigger story. And each week, as we've taken pieces or chunks of chapters out of Exodus, we're seeing God reveal Himself in a particular way. We've seen God who is, reveal Himself as a God who's merciful, as a God who is faithful, as a God who fights on behalf of His people. Today we come full circle. I am your God who is glorious. This is how I think we see God revealing himself as we close this series. I am your God who is glorious. Now we're going to read a few verses from this larger passage of 35, chapters 35 through 40. We're going to read actually 22 verses from chapter 35. Like I said, only a few. 
and then a couple from Exodus 40. So let's start with Exodus 35. You can turn there. It'll be on the screen as well. Um, Starting in verse 1 to kind of set the stage for us of what's happening now in the story of Exodus. Starting in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning, Exodus 35. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, tanned ram's skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light, with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light. And the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils. The basin and its stands, stand. The hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases and the screen for the gate of the court. The pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, their cords and the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place. The holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets and all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Move forward now, if you would, to Exodus chapter 40. We're just going to read the last uh, four or so verses of the chapter and of the book. Verse 40, starting in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is God's holy word for us today. Now, in this final section of text in our book, 
all that God had instructed the people about how to build the tabernacle and how to worship God as His people that we've already read was now being constructed. In fact, much of chapters 36 through 40 are word for word of what God has already said. He tells them what He wants, and then Moses records the play-by-play, if you will, of God's people following God's instructions to the letter. Here are the instructions. I've given them to you very specifically, and now Moses is recording everything that they're doing in careful detail. The question is, why? Why are we getting this play-by-play of what God has already told them? I think there might be lots of reasons. I'm just going to give you one. One thing that we should take away from this section of Exodus, and maybe Exodus as a whole, is that God is serious about worship. If you were to take all the words in the book of Exodus and all the phrases and organize them by theme, a vast majority of the words and phrases in Exodus would fall into the worship category. The explanation of it, the instructions as to how to set it up, the practice of it, the why. That's what a majority of Exodus is about, and that's what a majority of these verses from 35 to 40 are about. They're about worship. And worship corresponds to glory. God is showing himself to be glorious. That is, he's showing himself to be worthy of glory, worthy of worship. Here's a a thing I found helpful. Maybe you'll find it helpful as well. Uh, Philip Graham Riken is a biblical scholar. Um, He's written some very wonderful, helpful biblical commentary. He says it this way. The Bible speaks of God's glory in three ways. First, glory is the inward majesty of God. Riken's saying he just is glorious. Second, it's the brightness God sometimes shines out into the world, which we looked at last week where Moses' face glowed forever and he had to wear a veil and freak the people out because he got just a glimpse of God's glory. God's brightness shone out enough in the world that it it was seen. Third, Riken says, it is the worship we offer to God. He continues, when we see God's glory, the proper way for us to respond is to give him the glory, to offer him all the honor and praise he deserves. And then he quotes Edwards. As Jonathan Edwards concluded, The end of the creation is that the creation might glorify God. Now what is glorifying but a rejoicing at that glory he has displayed? Riken is quoting Jonathan Edwards that the end of creation is that the creation might glorify God. And it actually sounds a lot like the first question of what is known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Written in 1646 was designed in order to train up believers in the faith with a question and answer set up. And the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of creation? Well, that creation might glorify God, as Edwards says. So with absolutely no shame at all, I'm going to blatantly rip off Westminster's Confession of Faith, question and answer number one, to help us frame out how to understand this last section of Exodus today. Why does God do what he does? 
Why does he reveal himself in this way? Why does he make a people for himself? Why does he redeem this people from slavery and sin? Why does God do any of this? And as a follow-up, what is my purpose in this life? The purpose of all of God's work and the purpose of your life and my life is to glorify God. And I think this is true for every human on the planet, whether they say they believe in God or not. For what purpose is God at work? What is the purpose of my life? And what we're seeing in Exodus is this, that God reveals himself and God redeems his people so that they might glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's God's purpose, and that is our purpose. The question is, how does God then get glory in what we're covering today? How does God get glory in lampstands and tents and, and, and fabric and all of that? And I think the question is answered in our text. So how does God get glory from our lives is then the question that we'll read as we work through the text. And I think I see three things in this text where God gets glory. God gets glory in our giving, God gets glory in our working, and God gets glory in our resting. We see these three categories in our text today. God gets glory in our giving, in our working, and in our resting. If the purpose of our lives is worship, to glorify God, then let's see what that looks like. Let's look at the first one. First, God gets glory in our giving. Our passage, Exodus 35, opens with a short a word about the Sabbath. We're going to pause that and come back to it. So set aside those three verses. We'll come back to it. Verses 4 through 29 of Exodus 35 deal with contributions. Look at verse 4. Moses says to the congregation, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then Moses goes on to list, which we read already, all the metals and fabrics and animal skins and oils and spices and stones to build the tabernacle and all of its parts. From the tent itself to the garments that the priests would wear. And all of this, all of the supplies, the materials, come from the contributions of the people. Now, if you've been with us, this is not the first time this idea has come up of contributions from the people. In Exodus 25, I kind of breezed right over it and didn't address it. I actually had someone say to me like, hey, you didn't really address the contributions of the people in in chapter 25 a couple weeks ago. And I'm like, that's okay, we'll get to it later. This is later. Here we are. Chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, where God says, hey, you're going to have contributions to this project that I'm having you do these instructions. He's preparing them. This is coming. And then here in 35, the people are doing just that. They're bringing all the things God said, hey, you're going to need to bring these things. Now, if you remember, one of the main things we've read here in Exodus, God has said it over and over again, that the world would know that I am the Lord, that the nations would know my name, that you, I take you out of bondage and bring you to myself so that you would worship me. This is glory language, right? The question, how does God get the glory in the contributions of the people? Let me ask you a simple question. Where do the people get the gold and silver and fine linen and livestock for skins and the fancy stones and jewelry? Where do they get all of that? God provided it. Remember, they were a slave, enslaved and subjugated people. 
Now, they may have had some livestock and some family heirlooms and things like that, but much of what they had, they plundered from Egypt when they left. How did they plunder Egypt? God made that happen. In fact, essentially, if you remember, the Egyptian people paid for Israel to just leave because the plagues were so bad. Would you just go here, take some gold and be on your way? That's essentially how it went. So everything that they had, they had because God provided it to them. And there's the parallel for us. How does God get glory in our giving? The same exact way. Everything that we have comes from God. Every penny that you earn, and that's intentionally with air quotes, comes to you ultimately because God provides it. God has given you a mind and hands to work. And as you put those things to work, you produce a good or a service, right? And an employer or a customer then pays you for that good or service. This is like Economics 101. But let me ask, are you consciously telling your heart to, hey, pump blood, I need blood now? Are you consciously telling your mind to fire electrical impulses down the rest of your body so your legs work or you can solve the math spreadsheet problem you can't figure out or the coding issue, right? Of course not. Why? Because it just works. God has given that to you. So, when we give, contribute to God, maybe it's the context of our local church, maybe it's in support of gospel work in other places around the globe, we're not then able to say, hey, look what I've done. Rather, we say, God has been so generous to me and out of God's abundance in giving to me, I give. One thing of note, there aren't categories here for amounts in either Exodus 25 or 35. The guy that gave 100 gold rings and 50 yards of purple cloth compared to the poor family who maybe only gave a few bronze pieces and a goat skin... We don't get any of that. Look at verse 5 of Exodus 35. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then look down at verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all of its service and the holy garments. Verse 22. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart heart. It is not about the quantity of the contribution, but the quality of the heart of the giver. All the way back here in Exodus, God is still aiming at the heart, not the product. The heart. They were willing, and from their willingness came generosity. Now, we understand this as like a New Testament, New Covenant people, We already have language for this. And sometimes we separate it out like, well, there was these Old Testament rules and regulations and then, you know, here in the New Testament, God cares about the heart. No, God is the same and he's after the heart. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Here's how Paul says it, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that word cheerful that we have in our Bibles, in the Greek, it's the word 
Poleros. We share a root word with the English word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. What's being said in this? It means it's not reluctant. It's willing and cheerful and generous. Now, why add generous to this list? Look at verse 36. Or excuse me, chapter 36, verse 3. Sorry. And they, the craftsmen who are putting this project together, received from Moses all the contributions the people of Israel had brought for doing the work in the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings, bringing Moses free will offerings every morning so that the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord had commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. That strikes me. It was actually too much. They brought too much. The craftsmen were like, hey, I, I, we don't have a place for all of this cloth. You're just going to have to hang on to it. This is how God gets the glory in our giving. Do you see it? Only God could provide out of His abundance through His people like this. There was no chance for the people of Israel to say, see, we've colored in the entire giving thermometer all red. Look at us. There was no way for them to do that. As an aside, this is one of the things that is guiding our own projects here at River City. Uh, This is a little side note, family meeting. Uh, Here you go. This is family conversation for members of River City. If you've been around and you've read anything we've sent to you, we're asking all of our members to prayerfully consider what they can contribute to the project that we're working on so we can multiply what we're able to do in terms of discipleship of children and families and in equipping the saints for the work of the ministry that will outlast us uh, long after we are dead, Lord willing. No, we're not building a temple, but we want to grow the worship of God among us and through us. And much like the the idea here of contributions to what God is up to for God's people, it doesn't matter if it's uh, one gold ring or five, five dollars or five hundred dollars. We pledge and we give out of whatever God has given. This is just participation in the life of the body. So family business, if you're a member of River City, we're asking you to consider that pledge form to help us know where we're at. Family business over. Back to the text. That's the first thing. God gets the glory in our giving because God is the one who provides everything that we have. So giving is an act of worship because it's God's anyway. Two, God gets the glory in our working. It's not only the giving of things, but the giving of our labor. Look at everything that's done here by the hands of God's people. If you go all the way back to chapter 31... There are instructions for the people to build and craft and weave and fashion all sorts of things. Fantastic action words, verbs here of all the things that the people are going to do. And then in chapter 36, we see those same things now being created. And there are two names that we read in chapters 31 and 36. Oholiab and Bezalel. Short rabbit trail. Parents in the room, you're looking for a good boy name from the Bible. 
These are two that are probably unique. No one else is going to use these. But these two men are called by God as the, essentially the chief craftsmen for this project. Exodus 31 tells us they, that God said, I'm going to fill them with my spirit, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship. Here's some of the things they're going to do. They're going to devise artistic designs. They're going to work in precious metal and stone and carving of wood. These are God-given skills and abilities and knowledge. And on top of that, others are going to be raised up to assist so that no one could sit on the sidelines and say, I'm just not artistic. Got to let the artsy, craftsy person do the whole like wood carving thing. I don't have skills. God doesn't really allow for that. Chapter 6 of verse 31. I have given all, to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. And where did they get these skills? The Lord filled them with his spirit and gave them skill and intelligence and knowledge. And just like it's the Lord who provides all that the people have, the Lord makes it possible for all that the people will do. And everybody is included. Everyone brings what they have to contribute and everyone works with what they have to create. Everyone. Look at Exodus chapter 35, verse 25. And every skillful woman spun with her hands. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. Now you don't have to spin goat's hair to contribute. Do you see the parallels? Their hearts stirred in them. Again, this is willing and generous. And then from here, the middle of 35 through 39, the work is happening. We're not going to read it all because it's the play-by-play. Here's the short version. They build first the tabernacle, the tent part, the tent of meeting. Then they build the ark inside, the ark of the covenant, where the law would go and the Aaron's staff and the a sample of the manna from the wilderness. And the mercy seat would sit on top where God would meet with his people. Then the table for bread then the lampstand, then the altar of incense, then the altar outside for burnt offerings with its bronze gate to collect all the blood of the sacrifice, then the bronze basin for washing, then they make the walls of the courtyard, then all the materials for the practice of worship inside the tabernacle, and then the garments for the priests. Again, I'd encourage you to just go through and read through that this week. And in Exodus 39, verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. They finished what the Lord told them to do. Look down at verse 42 of chapter 39. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work and Moses saw all the work and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses Bless them. God gets the glory because God is the one who has equipped the people with everything they need to accomplish the task. Their knowledge, their skill, all came from God and was being used to show God's excellency. And as God's new covenant people, we too are called to offer back to God, not merely in our giving, but in our working as well. 
We don't have to build a tabernacle or a temple or remodel the second floor of an old building downtown to give God glory for His gifts. Just from the people that I know here in this church, we have artists who are masterfully skilled in all sorts of mediums, from watercolor to clay. We have craftsmen who can build custom motorcycles to live-edge wood slab tables that have been sliced right out of trees. We have gifts of sewing and quilting and cooking. We have gifted minds here that are part of our church family that can sort and plan and execute. Those who can envision like big picture problems and those who can solve minute details. And we're not even scratching the surface. Every skill, every ability, every piece of usable knowledge that you have when you put it to use, is an opportunity to praise God. That's what I want to pull, the string I want to pull on here. This is how God gets the glory in our work, in our labor, in our creativity. Because I can either say, yeah, I am so smart, I figured that out. Or I can say, yes, I am glad that I can do that. And God gets the glory for that. Now you can enjoy it and celebrate it. In fact, I think you should I think joy and gratitude to God should well up inside of us when we're using the gifts that God has given us. It should happen. We should take some measure of joy in those things. You might be really, really good at something. People might tell you how good your work is or how skilled you are, how creative you are or funny or knowledgeable, and that's okay. I'd argue it's actually a good thing because God actually sends encouragement often through the accolades and encouragement of other people. You don't need a false humility when someone says, hey, what you did, that's really good. You can say, thank you. It's hard for us in the Midwest to do that. We're like, no. We say that out loud, but then inside we're like, I'm awesome. <laughs> just, just, is this just me? Okay, maybe it's just me. You can say thanks. I'm really proud of how that turned out. I worked really hard at that. That's fine. The question is, do you know in here that God actually did that? Does gratitude well up to God in that? Does the praise stay with you? Or does it roll up in praise to Him? Apostle Paul tells the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 3, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You do that spreadsheet to the glory of God. You run that defense to the glory of God. There was a linebacker in the first service that I just was trying to encourage him. Right? You clean that kitchen to the glory of God. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. God gets the glory in our working because He's the one who gives skills and ability and from Him comes the blessing and the encouragement. That's the second thing. God gets glory in our working. Third, and finally, God gets glory in our resting. Now, I said we'd come back to the Sabbath piece in a minute. Here we are back at it. Chapter 35, verse 2. Six days you shall work, shall work be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Why six days of work and one day of rest? We have to go back to Exodus chapter 20. A number of weeks ago, when Pastor Devin was preaching through the section on the Ten Commandments, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
It actually goes beyond Exodus 20, back to the beginning, to Genesis. God created in six days and rested on the seventh. Now, God wasn't tired because God doesn't get tired. We get tired. God doesn't get tired. But the seventh day was a day of rest because God was done. He had created everything that he intended to create and thus created a rhythm that all of creation was now supposed to follow. The rhythm that we operate in is this. Work, 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 work. That's seven. That's not the rhythm that God put into action in Genesis. Work, 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 rest. It upends the perpetual motion of our reality. Set this day apart, God says, different from all the other days. Don't work, don't make your kids work, don't make your livestock work. Chapter 35, verse 3, don't even start a new fire today. Worship the Lord and rest. Now, this one might be the oddest of the three. Like, you can look at it and go, okay, I can see how God gets the glory in our giving because, well, God provided it for us and we offer it back to Him. I can see how God gets the glory in our working because, well, He's given me these skills and abilities. I can move. How can I move to the glory of God, right? We can get our brains around that. But how can our resting give glory to God? Here's just the simplest way I think it happens. God gets the glory in our resting because it reminds us and everyone else who actually rules the universe. As a farmer, to set aside a day in the field says that God is the one who grows the crops, God's the one who sends the rain and the sun, so I can work hard on the days when I'm working and I can rest on this day, trusting that God is in control. To set aside a day in the workshop says that God is the one who makes the sunrise. God is the one who gives me energy so I can work hard on the days when I'm working and I can set aside time to rest, trusting that God will provide. To set aside a day in the office is to say God is the one who stirs the hearts of people to buy what I'm selling or to respond to what I'm asking of them so I can work hard on the days when I'm working and on another day I can actually set my phone down. And not respond to the email or the text. I can rest on this day. Sabbath rest is a tangible expression of faith. It says out loud with our actions, I am not God. That's what it's doing. In fact, all of the ceremony surrounding tabernacle worship on the Sabbath, almost all of it is just a continual reminder of the dependence of God's people on God himself. They bring their gifts that God's provided, they offer them, God receives them, they are seeking Him for, for peace and for forgiveness and for hope and to fulfill His promises that God would be merciful. This carved out day of worship is outwardly acknowledging God has provided everything and we trust Him. So the question is, do you struggle to rest sometimes? Do you live as if everything is dependent on you? And can I just encourage you to consider that maybe you're thinking a little too much of your own ability. You're carrying around a burden that doesn't belong to you. Laying down to sleep at night, setting aside a day for worship and rest is a tangible way to say, God, I trust you. And that's part of the beauty of the Sabbath. It's not merely a day of worship to God, although it is that, but it is a gift that God gives 
to his people. Meaning, this is a gift to give you rest and remind you that God is sufficient to hold the universe. God is sufficient to manage your calendar and your to-do list in his hands. When we rest, we are giving God glory as the one who upholds the universe by the word of his own power. He doesn't need our help. Now as we close, skip ahead to chapter 40, verse 34 that we read earlier. When everything was done, they had built all the component parts. Verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As I said when we began this morning, God is serious about worship. And the reason he's serious about worship is that he's the only one worthy of it. God calls his people out of the wilderness, or out of bondage into the wilderness, to the mountain, eventually to the place and city of promise, so that they might worship him there. And our calling as God's new covenant people is not so different. God calls you and God calls me out of slavery to sin, brings us to himself as his people, so that we as his people, as his church, might worship him. And not only in a temple, but with all of our lives. It is the will of God for us that we might worship him. God has laid a claim to all of us. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the main occupation of our entire lives is the glory of God. We ascribe him glory as we worship him with every part of our lives. What is the chief end of our lives? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. For his people coming out of Egypt, God was pleased to have his glory dwell in a tent. And for us, his new covenant people, God is pleased to have his glory dwell in Jesus Christ, the incarnate son. Here's what Paul says that Jesus is. From Colossians 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ is the gift and the giver and the embodied glory of God. God is pleased to display his glory in Jesus Christ the Son. So as we turn the page from Exodus and we move into a season of Advent, let's not miss the glory of God on display in the incarnation. That is, that God didn't just descend in a cloud. God put on flesh to dwell with us. And not only put on flesh to dwell with us, but in that flesh, in his own body, has reconciled all things to himself with his death on the cross. 
Friends, God displays His glory in every penny of God's provision. And He receives His glory in every generous contribution we return to Him. God displays His glory in every ounce of energy that we have, and He receives glory in every ounce of energy that we expend, knowing that in the Lord never is our labor in vain. God displays His glory in our rest, because in our resting, we are admitting that He is God, and we are content to rest in Him. God has revealed Himself And he redeems us as his people so that we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. He is our God and he is glorious. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are kind to show us your glory. You're not required to make yourself known, and yet you do. Because you rightly desire and deserve worship. So would you help us to see how you are glorious in these different ways, that you are glorious just because of who you are. That you are glorious in the way you make yourself known to us and that you are glorious as you receive back the worship due your name. Would you receive glory and worship, not just from our lips, but from our hearts and our lives even today? Holy Spirit, be kind and gracious to identify the places where our worship is misplaced. And would you receive all the glory in your giving to us, your working on our behalf, your providing for us that we might respond, offering back to you all that you've given to us and resting in your goodness. Encourage and nourish the body as we look upon the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Would we see fresh glory in the cross and the glorious resurrection this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.